Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Merry Christmas, Hope Chapel. It's a great privilege to be with you this afternoon. And for those of you who are visiting with us this afternoon, on behalf of our leadership and our whole church family, I just want to extend to you a very warm welcome. I want you to know, we want you to know that we're so thankful that you've chosen to share your Christmas Eve with us this year here at Hope Chapel. This is going to be a little bit of an interactive time. So I want you to feel free to respond to me when I ask you questions, okay? Let's try that again, okay? All right, here we go. I'm going to begin with a confession. Are you ready? I love Christmas. I love it. I've always loved Christmas ever since I was a little kid. But I hardly think that that makes me unique here this afternoon. Many even most of us here probably love Christmas, but why? Why do we love Christmas? I think it's almost difficult to put your finger on the answer to that question because in our culture today, Christmas is a whole season, right? When we say something like, I love Christmas, intuitively, we hear that as, I love the whole season building up to and culminating in Christmas Day. Thanksgiving comes, Thanksgiving goes, and then almost magically, voila, Christmas is just in the air, right? It's the trees and the lights and the songs and the spirit. It's the brisk West Coast weather, especially this past week. The holiday vibes all around. It is, after all, the most wonderful time of year. Unless you're a dad like me, and after spending the day putting lights up on your house, you have to take your kids to Candy Cane Lane to look at other people's lights. <laughs> and that experience is inevitably like sitting in a parking lot where you just have to, on the radio, suffer through Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You over and over and over and over again. But I digress. As Christians, we know that as much as we love the Christmas season, it is the true meaning of Christmas that fills our hearts and that motivates our singing. What I especially love about Christmas here at Hope is what we just experienced. It's the the congregational caroling, singing songs together with all of our voices expressing, even exclaiming the wonder of the world The Word made flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago in a tiny town called Bethlehem of Judea. I submit to you that in addition to these songs being properly worshipful, one thing that their rich lyrics do accomplish is help us narrow our focus on the theological and on the spiritual wonder of the Christmas event. As you've no doubt observed by this point, our theme this Christmas at Hope is, O come let us adore Him. 
So that it, it was only fitting that at the beginning of our time together, we sang those very lyrics. And as we gather this afternoon together, I want us to reflect upon them. I want us to reflect upon those lyrics. And specifically, I want to present one main question for our consideration this Christmas Eve. Are you ready? Why do we come to adore Him? Why do we come to adore Him? I think that the answer to this question is found tucked away in a small letter of our New Testament in a little corner of our Bibles that we wouldn't intuitively turn to at Christmas time. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul towards the end of his life and ministry when he was imprisoned in Rome for promoting the gospel. We can date the letter historically to somewhere between 60 and 62 AD, and we know that it was written to a group of Christians to a church in a city of Asia Minor called Colossae. So, how many of us have written a letter or sent an email or an iMessage? You know, we tweet every day. We always have a motivation behind our correspondence, right? Well, Paul had a motivation behind this correspondence, and his primary motivation for writing this letter was to emphasize, to reinforce the deity of Jesus Christ and to oppose this false doctrine that was threatening to creep into the church and to undermine this foundational truth about Jesus. Now, in this letter to the Colossians, Paul writes something utterly spectacular in the opening paragraphs. He says this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. In our Bibles today, this one profound sentence is broken up into two simple verses, and I believe that as we look to each of these two verses, we find two equally simple yet profound answers to our question this afternoon. Why do we come to adore Him? I want to submit to you that we come to adore Him first because He is God as man. Paul says, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And I want to submit secondly that we come to adore Him because He is God as Savior. Through Him we are reconciled to and at peace with God by the blood of His cross. First, He is God as man. Look with me at Paul's declaration in verse 19. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Just to be clear, the Him in this statement refers to Jesus. But before I talk to you more about this particular verse, I want to address some of our assumptions about the Christmas story, about the Christmas narrative. When we sing those songs... That those lyrics, O come, let us adore Him, we have a certain picture of the Christmas story. We have a certain picture of the nativity in our minds, right? Now, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but 
we're not always aware of how many misconceptions we import into our view of the actual Christmas story from layers and layers of culture and tradition. So I want to briefly talk through some elements of the Christmas narrative that, that are familiar to us. First, I want to talk to you about Joseph and Mary. They were not turned away by a polite innkeeper whose facility in Bethlehem had reached full occupancy. The Greek word that's traditionally been translated in actually means guest room. The best evidence suggests that Joseph and Mary were turned away actually by their own extended family who likely refused to make room for them in the guest room of their dwelling, probably because news of Mary's unexpected pregnancy had reached Joseph's extended family far ahead of Joseph and Mary themselves. So instead of being received by their family in Bethlehem, they were unsympathetically turned away and relegated to the animals outside the home. Second, let me just briefly assess our traditional American nativity scenes. How many of you have a nativity scene at home? I believe that if you're going to pick on somebody, you should pick on your, somebody your own size. So I'm going to pick on our nativity scene, just to be fair. It is super cute, isn't it? But sometimes I fear that our imagining of the actual Christmas events are shaped more by nativities than, than by the biblical record itself. If we're going to be biblical, then there's a few things I'd like to point out. To begin with, this may come to a shock, a shock to some of you, but Joseph and Mary were not Caucasian, and neither was baby Jesus or anybody else in the scene for that matter. Mary's garments were probably blood-stained and filthy from her labor and delivery. The same could probably be said for Joseph. They were with animals. Their environment was probably filthy. The ground was exposed and likely riddled with animal waste. Whatever hay was present certainly wasn't clean and perfectly manicured. The circumstances that they experienced that Christmas were cold and raw. Rejection and humiliation were just hanging in the air. Now a word or two about the wise men. And we're just convinced, for whatever reason, that there were precisely three of them, right? I mean, look, one, two, three. Every nativity scene you look at has precisely three wise men. But Matthew doesn't actually tell us how many there were. Furthermore, the Greek word that he does use to refer to them is this word magoi. That's where we get the term magi. And the best that we can kind of piece together historically is that they were probably pagan priests from the Far East, maybe in Persia, experts in astrology, and they practiced the interpreta interpretation of dreams and various other pagan rituals. But here's the kicker. Are you ready? Are you ready? They were not actually there to see baby Jesus in the manger. So take those three wise men and remove them from the picture. And to add insult to injury, neither was the great star. Rather, the great star rose in the east when Jesus was born and led the Magi along their long expedition west, first to Jerusalem. And it was up to two years after Christ's birth when the great star finally led those Magi to the house in Bethlehem that Joseph 
Mary and young Jesus finally settled in before their flight to Egypt. But as we consider these realities, perhaps it was fitting. Perhaps it was fitting that though Jerusalem was only six miles away with all of her Pharisees and scribes and and religious elite, that it was first some humble and lowly shepherds that found baby Jesus in the manger that night, the little baby who would grow to be the good shepherd. And perhaps it was equally fitting that those magi, the spiritual and the ethnic outsiders with respect to Judaism, came to visit young Jesus sometime later because Jesus is the one, after all, who would fold us ethnic and spiritual outsiders into the very family of God. The Word says that He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. Now, finally, let's talk about the heavenly host. We picture the angel of the Lord appearing to the shepherds in the fields who are tending their flocks. And this scene from Luke 2 is certainly made most famous in our culture by Linus's monologue in A Charlie Brown Christmas. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So after Charlie Brown is ridiculed by his peers for picking that tiny dilapidated Christmas tree, sorry excuse of a Christmas tree for their Christmas play, he exclaims to Linus in exasperation, I guess you are right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? To which Linus just awesomely responds in monologue by reciting from memory on the spot Luke chapter 2, verses 18 through 14. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were so afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So then Linus concludes, that is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. I just have to say that I love Christmas But I also love a Charlie Brown Christmas. I probably watched it at least 50 times with my kids this month. But it amazes me that it still gets airtime in our culture today because Linus is spot on theologically and his message totally undermines the commercialization of Christmas, doesn't it? But when we think about that scene from Luke chapter 2, our minds, for whatever reasons, picture this, this, this rending, this separation, this opening of the heavens in this utterly majestic, angelic choir singing to God, right? Now, here's my point. The word that's traditionally been translated host, as in heavenly host, really means army, as in heavenly army. 
And what Luke depicts is not an angelic choir per se, but God revealing in that majestic Christmas moment a multitude of His heavenly army readied for spiritual battle and praising God in war chant in the moment of the incarnation as God sovereignly moved forward His cosmic agenda of redemption and peace for all creation. And so this final observation points us to a greater theme at Christmas. And hopefully the picture that we are reconstructing is of a Christmas that was not clean and tidy, picturesque, and tranquil. Christmas was the beginning of war. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil and to reverse the curse of the fall. And the devil tried to destroy him while he was young and vulnerable. And that's why the devil later inspired Herod to order the massacre of all the boys in Bethlehem, two years old or younger, and why the angel of the Lord again appeared to Joseph and directed him to flee with his, fa- with his family to Egypt until Herod died. Now, I had to say all of that so I can say this. You ready? You ready? Okay, good. You're still with me. Of all of our misconceptions about Christmas, perhaps the most serious misconception is that we come to adore a little babe in a manger that was just somehow sublimely precious. You see, such an imagining completely misses the heart of Christmas. We do not adore baby Jesus because He is so precious. We adore Him because in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When Paul uses those words, all the fullness of God, he means simply that Jesus is fully God. In other words, all of God's divine powers and attributes find their incarnation in Jesus. All of God's godness, if you will, is in Jesus. There is no attribute or quality of God that does not dwell in Jesus. Jesus is truly and fully God, and simultaneously, He is truly and fully man. He is the complete and comprehensive God-man. And that in and of itself, church, is a mind-bending yet glorious reality, is it not? This is the miracle, the majesty, the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus' conception and birth of Christmas. But to add an even greater degree of magnificence to all this, Paul includes a subtle but important detail in what he writes. He says that in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We hear this. And we think of pleasure in terms of something that is momentary in passing, something spurious. But when it says that God was pleased to dwell, Scripture is referring to God's infinite wisdom and sovereignty, to His eternal plan and purpose. Here's the thing. God's pleasure was not momentary in passing. Instead, the reference to God being pleased is a reference to the wisdom of His eternal plan of salvation. The eternal Father had always planned and was always pleased to send the eternal Son to take on human flesh. Christmas, then, is not just an expression of the divine Son's incarnation, but also 
an expression of the eternal Father's pleasure. Hopefully, together, we're beginning to sense just the sheer magnitude and the true meaning of Christmas. And yet we've only looked at one of our two verses. But it's here that I need to point out that these two verses, they don't exist in isolation. They're surrounded by other verses and other paragraphs by context. And it's the context that takes what is already magnificent for us from high definition to ultra high definition. Guys, from 4K to 400K, if there was such a resolution technologically. Just a few verses earlier in chapter 1, in verses 15 through 17, Paul describes Jesus in some other glorious ways. First, he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that He is the exact representation of God. In other words, when we see Jesus, we see God. Elsewhere, Scripture says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. But next, Paul says that Jesus is before all things. And this is his way of saying that before Jesus had taken bodily form that first Christmas, that He existed in eternity past as the divine Son, the second person of the Trinity. Finally, Paul says that in Him all things hold together. In other words, the universe is not self-sufficient. God did not create the universe and all that it contains just to walk away from it. No. He says that Jesus is the one who sustains creation by His existence and by His power. It is not just us, but the entire cosmos that depends upon Him. Again, Scripture says that He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So how does all this add up as we celebrate, as we remember Christmas? Church, we are talking about the one who is eternal, who created all, who sustains all, upon whom everything and everyone are dependent, even for their and our continued existence And 2,000 years ago, lying dependent and vulnerable in a first century manger, lay this very God of the universe. There to adore was the second person of the Trinity who existed eternally before creation, who not only acted as the agent of creation, but who in His deity forever holds all things together in creation. He took on bodily form. He took on human flesh. The Creator took the form of the creature. The Bible says that He humbled Himself. The Apostle John expresses this reality majestically, beautifully. In the opening to his account of Jesus' life, the opening to his gospel, where John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
church. As Christians, we celebrate the glory of Christmas because we celebrate the glory of Christ. So this Christmas, let us adore Him because He is God as man. Let us adore Him because in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But second, He is God as Savior. Look with me now at Paul's second statement located in verse 20. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of His cross. As we considered verse 19, we briefly visited upon the full weight of all that God did in taking on human flesh. But we never stopped to ask a very important question. Why? Why did Jesus come? Even more, why is His coming good news? The angel of the Lord that appeared to the humble shepherds did declare after all that He brought good news of great joy. It is good news because it is the first step of a greater plan. God's fullness not only dwelt in Jesus, but God purposed to accomplish a great work through Jesus. That purpose is expressed here with two simple but complementary verbs, actions, to reconcile and to make peace, to reconcile and to make peace. God's fullness was pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus so that through Him we might be reconciled to God. God's fullness was pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus so that through Him we might be at peace with God. We can't be reconciled to God just by Jesus' birth. We can't find peace with God through Christmas alone. No, Paul says that God reconciles us to Him and makes peace with us by the blood of Jesus' cross. Notice that it is God who does the redeeming, and it is God who makes the peace, not us, but Him. Many in our culture will argue that there is no such thing as sin, that sin does not present any real problem between us and God, and Jesus, after all, was born to be a good moral example to us. Well, I submit to you that statements like those invite very serious scrutiny. If there is no sin, why does God have to reconcile us by the blood of Jesus' cross? Wouldn't we already be reconciled to Him? If sin is not a problem, why does God need to establish peace with us? Wouldn't we already be at peace with Him? If sin isn't a problem, then why did they kill Jesus? I mean, wouldn't it be a sin to kill a good moral example? Or was it only them who were sinful? But then if some were sinful, who is to say that we're not all sinful? And if all of this is the case, then who are we to say with supreme confidence that we, here, this afternoon, are not sinful? The Apostle John, in his first letter, wrote, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Our sin is the problem that Jesus came to solve. 
At Christmas, we adore Jesus as he came in the fullness of deity manifest in the body of a baby. But we must see that his work in coming is inseparably linked to his work in saving. He saves us through our redemption and through making peace with us for the Father. And all of this is accomplished by the blood of his cross. You see, Christmas casts a cross-shaped shadow. We cannot separate Jesus' birth from Jesus' death. We cannot separate His manger from His tomb. We cannot separate His swaddling cloths from His burial cloths. We cannot separate His humiliation at His birth from His humiliation at His death. We cannot separate Christmas from the cross. The two are indivisibly linked by God's eternal plan and by God's redemptive purpose. Whereas you and I were born to live and to enjoy life, Jesus was born to die and to give life. He was born to live the perfect life that we could not live, and He was born to die the death that we, not He, deserve. Scripture says that Jesus humbled Himself, that He took on human form, and then He humbled Himself further by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And all of this initiative that God has taken in coming to us and in dying for us is ultimately an expression of His love for us. Paul writes in Romans 5, but God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was born to save us by standing in our place by being our substitute. And no sentence, no expression in all of Scripture captures this sense of substitution, the very gospel that I declare to you this afternoon itself better than what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christmas is not only the account of Jesus' birth, that's only the half of it. Christmas is the account of the one true God. The triune God, Father, Spirit, Son, personally stepping into human history, condescending, coming to our level, coming to us in order to save us from the power and from the penalty of our sin, in order to give us new life, and in order to draw us near to Him in a relationship that is characterized by peace, not enmity. So let us adore Him because He is God as man. And let us adore Him because He is God as Savior. In closing, this Christmas, we remember that God had to become a man before God could become the Savior of men. This Christmas, we remember the birth of Jesus, but we also remember the cross of Jesus. It is only the combination of the two 
of His incarnation and His crucifixion that made possible those words spoken to Joseph by the angel of the Lord 2,000 years ago in the prophetic fulfillment that Matthew records along with it. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. Christ. Our Lord. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.